I can't stop thinking about them. I keep rereading their old texts. Brian, Brian, this has got to stop. It's been months and they send those alerts to everyone. You know that, right? Look, your bank is leaving, but you got to get back out there. Listen to me, any bank would be lucky to have you, especially Bank of Ireland. Really? Yeah, they've even put together a simple step-by-step guide to move on banks and have a dedicated team on hand to help. Even an ending could be a new beginning. To start finding your new banking partner, download our step-by-step guide to moving banks. Search Bank of Ireland Big Move. Begin. Bank of Ireland is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. Screen Time with John Farty. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talks TV and Movie Show. This week on the show, English comedian, actor and musician Nick Helm on his new movie, Giddy Stratospheres. Mark Ryle reviews The Forever Purge and The Waterman on Netflix. Plus restaurant critic and foodie Tom Dorley on his favourite movie. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Fardy. Or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm right here on Newstalk. It's on slightly later this week on the radio, again because of the Lions coverage. Good weekend to you all. Hope you're doing well. I am now fully vaccinated. So that feels good, despite the rising numbers. Anyway... Let's not talk of that now. Allow me to recommend a great kids movie. (gasps) Hold on, stop. You accessorize with a sloth? (laughs) I accessorize with a sloth. Oh, oh, uh, these these are the crudes. Hello. Hey. What's up? And this? This, no. Yeah, this is Eep. You're a girl? Yeah. A girl. Friend! I've never had a girlfriend before! Neither me, neither girl! Okay, careful! Extra vertebrae! This is amazing. What do we do? What do we say to each other? What's happening to our voices? Where are we going to Now that's a clip from The Croods, A New Age. Some people call it The Croods 2. Technically, I think it's just called The Croods, A New Age. Anyway, it's the sequel or the second movie to the first Croods movie that came out in 2013, I think it is. But you certainly don't need to have seen the first one to enjoy this. This is basically a prehistoric family headed by the voice cast of Nicolas Cage, who's great in it, as this overbearing dad who's taking care of all his family. Chief among them is his tough young daughter, Eep, who's played brilliantly, voice cast again by Emma Stone. And Ryan Reynolds is kind of her almost adoptive I won't say brother, but he's a family friend they're now tasked with looking after. Anyway, they're trying to survive in the wild in prehistoric times and they come across a group of people called the Bettermans who seem slightly more evolved than the Croods and they're living in this tropical paradise. But all may not be well in this tropical paradise. This is a really fun kids movie that I was surprised by how much I enjoyed. I watched it with child number one who's nine and it's a great laugh. There's a lot of adult jokes in it for you as well. The animation is great. Peter Dinklage, who you know most famously from Game of Thrones, he voices the head of the Betterman family and basically he's this pretentious, you know, Java juice drinking pretentious fop uh, and he's great in it and the animation is great in it and my kid really enjoyed it and I really enjoyed it so The Croods A New Age is well worth a trip to the cinema I would say if you're looking for some family fun you'll get something out of it as well and in TV I want to recommend this we're all just out here trying aren't we and sometimes what you want to do honestly that's oh no is 
Scream. I really worry about you getting carried away. Shona, cop on. Carried away. I don't think I've ever heard so many Jesuses. Mm, yeah, sorry to talk about my ex in bed. I love you. Do you love me? Goodbye. I love you. Do you love me? No. Do you love me? I love you. Bye. Yes, the great Ashling B there from the second series of This Way Up, which started on Channel 4 this week. And all six episodes are now up on all four to watch and stream and download and all the things you do to watch TV. This is the second series of the Ashling B, Sharon Horgan drama comedy called This Way Up in the first season, Ashling B's character, Anya, was getting over what she described as a tinsy, nervous breakdown. And it's her struggling to get back to some kind of normality. She works as an English teacher. She's really close to her sister, played brilliantly by Sharon Horgan. The first season was great. I've watched the first four episodes of the new season. And it's equally great, if not better. Ashling B's character is trying to move on. She's in a relationship. Sharon Horgan's character is about to get married. That's bringing its own stresses with her. Ashling B is delightful in this, as is Sharon Horgan, as is the surrounding cast. What is great about this is it's really funny, really sweet, really warm. It treats the subject of, you know, mental health and, and mental health struggles really well because it's it, it, it comes in and out of it. Uh, it it's on the periphery. It's a, it's a dark cloud that will occasionally rain down. And it's treated really well and really humanly, I think. And Ashling B is wonderful in this. And what I love about it is, and I hope this doesn't sound condescending, but she's Irish in it. And she's not trying to be anything other than Irish. And she seems like lots of Irish women I know. She's so funny and she's so an Irish woman in the UK making her way. And her Irishness has nothing to do with her character, but it has everything to do with her character. This is delightful TV. I read a review somewhere that said it was indistinguishable from magic. I'd nearly go along with that. This is great TV. This Way Up, now available on all four. It's on Channel 4, Wednesday nights, I think it is. It is great. Now you're listening to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. We turn to the week's new releases and I'm joined by our resident critic, Mark Ryle, to cast his cold eye over what's on in the cinema and indeed on various streaming services. Mark, your eyes are very warm, of course. How are you? I'm good, John. How are you doing? Very well. Now, the first movie doesn't happen as much lately because I'm working hard, but I actually haven't seen, but we're, I suppose it's the big new release of the week if you exclude Space Jam, which we didn't get to for various reasons we won't bore people with, but it is The Forever Purge. Uh, now, I haven't seen this. I haven't seen any of the Purge movies, so tell me what's going on and more importantly, tell our listeners. I haven't either since the first one. Well, in a nutshell. And the first one was called just The Purge. The first one was The Purge, which yeah. was, I think it was 2013. Ethan Hawke was in that one. And it was it was a relatively small scale home invasion horror. But since then, the Purge movies have kind of moved away from horror and they've grown in scope and in world building of this kind of Purge mythology. Right. Um, the first three, uh, James DeMonaco, wrote and directed the the original and the first two sequels but um he stepped back to just writing this one the forever purge and the previous one the what was it the first purge it's confusing <laughs> yeah it is very confusing and come here bloom are attached as well right are producing yeah that's yeah. right um so 
in a nutshell, this is kind of this is going to get complicated. What the purge is: the purge is set in this alternative future where America is ruled by an authoritarian government called the New Founding Fathers of America. Hang and- on, that sounds familiar. <laughs> Sorry, I'll it, let you speak. It is the work of fiction. Okay. Um, but yeah, for one night every year, all crime, including murder, is legal for twelve hours, and then life goes back to normal the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is, in essence, what the purge is, and the Forever Purge uh, is set in Texas, Texas near the Mexican border, and it deals with two main groups of protagonists. The first are poor Mexicans, and the second are rich Texans. Um, Adila and Juan are undocumented immigrants who have recently arrived from Mexico, and Dylan and his pregnant wife Cassie are wealthy ranch owners. So you have the haves and the have-nots. And Dylan, the wealthy ranch owner, isn't racist, but dot, dot, dot. He hates Mexicans and he's of the opinion that we should all just stick to our own, etc., etc. Anyway, the day after the most recent purge, uh, there is this growing movement of white supremacists and far-right extremists. As I say, it's a work of fiction, but they decide to extend the purge indefinitely to basically to get rid of all the brown people. And Adila and Juan and Dylan and Cassie have to work together to try and survive. And okay. Right. Okay. So there's a lot going on there. In in the Purge movies in general, are they all based on this premise that for one night people can do what they want, or is it just in the uh, this one? No, no, no. That they're all. That, that's the 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 conceit of all of them. Um, of the, the, the first one um, back in 2013 was a small scale thing, and then the sequels gradually built on this political um, aspect of it. Um, and so, so obviously in this one then there's I was gonna say allegory, but maybe they're being more blatant than that. Finger on the pulse. <laughs> yeah. Um it 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 draws from a, a lot of different sources, like it's a bit of Mad Max and there's more than a bit of escape from New York and pretty much any zombie you can think of, except the thing with zombie movies is that when the bodies start piling up and the you know, and getting imaginatively dispatched we, we you know they're already dead to begin with so you don't have to feel too bad about enjoying it and um, this is it's quite a nasty uh cynical movie and in that sense i suppose it does feel like it's very of the moment and um, let me interrupt once more because i yeah. just want to be clear about this because you said the protagonists and this are kind of a group of mexicans and then some texans but, yeah. so who are the zombies well, the purges really. Um, okay. There's a lot of. It, I mean, the look. Uh, it, to go back to the Mad Max thing, the look of all the purge movies are uh, is quite distinct. They all there's these. Um, you know, all of the purgers are the, for want of a better term, they all wear these um, elaborate masks, and there's, there's a very distinct look to these movies. Um, but um, so, t- t- it, I'll tell you one thing: it isn't is 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 subtle, and okay. you know, as you can probably tell from the synopsis. Um, as social commentary goes, it is very, very heavy handed, which yeah. I suppose is fair enough, you know, um, because Americans, one thing the Americans don't do well is, is subtlety. Some <laughs> um, of them and, don't. It's true. And, uh, well, uh, OK, fair enough. But um, uh, there's one bit in it here where uh, Canada and Mexico open their borders to 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 allow unarmed, um, you know, Americans to to get out of the country. And the irony of of thousands of you know gun-toting rednecks desperately trying to escape into Mexico was 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 very tasty. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So, like you're saying, you know, very 
obvious real world connections laying it on a bit thick but some decent moments in it as well uh, and the aesthetic isn't bad so did you enjoy it I did, yeah. I mean, the action is good and it's well paced. I will say it's overly reliant on jump scares and you know, following a period of prolonged quiet with a with a sudden, really loud noise. But you know, the the, the premise is interesting and it has, yeah, it does have the odd clever idea. It's it's it it is. There's no getting around the fact that it's it it's a satisfying action movie, but it's made by a TV director and it has a cast of lower middle grade TV actors. Um, there are though a couple of standout moments. There's there's a, a long continuous take that lasts a couple of minutes, uh, weaving through the this pitched battle through the burning streets of El Paso, and it's it's not an earth shattering long take, but I'm a real sucker for a long take. I'm always <laughs> going to sit up and take notice, and I'm always going to appreciate the effort and planning that goes into pulling off a long take successfully. You know. Yes, and of course, regular listeners will know. I think your favorite of all those is in Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Oh no, that would oh, atonement. I think we were talking oh, about it's atonement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah, I just yeah. I just assume Raiders of the Lost Ark. You're the flashback to our our best scenes ever. Yeah. Yes. No. Anyway, I I'm digressing now. Let let me ask you this then. I, there was a radio host who's no longer on the station. Who whenever I talk to him about a movie would always say to me, "Is it a documentary?" So I'm wondering. I seem to say this to you a fair bit, particularly when it's a movie I haven't seen. But is it a horror? Uh, it's not a horror. No. Okay. Um, I, I don't think you could describe it as a horror. It's more of an action movie. I mean, the, okay. the violence isn't really. Uh, no, it doesn't. You know, I could not no. describe it as a horror. That, that's fine. You don't have to. I just want <laughs> the truth, Mark. That's all, and I can handle it. Okay, so uh, it sounds like you're giving it a kind of a thumbs up. I am kind of giving it a thumbs up. Yeah, I have to like some of the cast are really good. Um, Anna de la Ruggera is is one of the the principals, and she's she's far better than she needs to be. Also, okay. um, Will, Will Patton, um, he's a brilliant character actor. He he's in it for for the brief amount of screen time he has. He really makes the most of it. He's one of those actors that that he can play um, the good guy just as well as he can the bad guy, and he always leaves an impression regardless of whatever is going on around him. So, yeah. no, there are, it, it's, it's, it's not bad at all. So what would you say stars wise? Um, I am going to give it three and a half. I would describe it as compelling nastiness. Okay. Okay. Very good. Well, let's take a clip of the forever purge. Come on. The sell things, the chingaderas esta, the, the, the towers. Yeah. The towers, the cell towers, they are cutting them. Hey, we just watched that. A lot of cities have gone dark. Miami's gone. Austin is under siege. First responders are overwhelmed. We're in a state of emergency. It's all over the country. The violence is spreading and not stopping. Due to the waves of violence currently sweeping the U.S., Mexican President Leon Garcia Soler and Canadian Prime Minister Sophie Kouesh are opening their borders for the next six hours. Mexico and Canada will take in anyone from America unarmed and give them sanctuary until order is reestablished in the U.S. We gotta go to Mexico. That is a clip from The Forever Purge. Mark Royal gave it three and a half stars. I haven't seen it, but I'm kind of intrigued. What I'm intrigued about, Mark, nearly more than the actual movie is the kind of idea of it uh, mm. and the world-building nature of it and what it might actually involve. So I'd be curious to see it. I'm not dying to watch it, but I'm curious to see it. So make of that what you will. It is an interesting premise. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, now listen, something very different and something I have seen is a movie that came out on Netflix last week, uh, but we didn't have time to cover it. And it's called The Waterman. Mark, you've also seen it. Tell us mm. quickly what it's about. 
Um, this is David Oyelowo's directorial debut. I suppose you could say he's a poacher turned gatekeeper and, you know, good for him. Um, it's a really solid, confident effort for a first time director. Why would you um, describe him as a poacher turned gamekeeper? Just well, you know, because he's an actor. So the story is uh, Oyelowo and Rosario Dawson and um, Lonnie Chavez play a family who have just moved and are trying to settle into a new town in uh, in Oregon. And um, the young Chavez plays uh, Gunner. He's a, a, a weird bookish kid with a, a really vivid imagination and an artistic streak. And uh, Gunner, Gunner's relationship with his father is a bit um, difficult, but he's very close to his mother. So it's unfortunate that she is is, is seriously ill with, uh, with leukemia. And then Gunner finds about, out about this uh, urban legend known as the Waterman, who legend has it possesses immortality. And he takes off into the woods, hoping to find the Waterman and to save his mother. And in tow in the woods is another, you know, girl who's a bit distant from her parents as well, called Joe, who's promising she'll be able to take him to the Waterman. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, we should mention, and I was, I kind of sat up in my chair when I was watching the opening credits. It is executive produced by Oprah Winfrey uh, mm-hmm. and it's from her Harpo Productions company. So I don't know. It's funny when, when you see that, it, it, it gives you pause. You, you, you know, it's a brand that certainly makes you curious to see what it's going to be about, you know, and exactly, I know yeah, yeah. authors all over the world long to be part of that book club. What did you think of this? I think it's, I thought it was really good. It's a, it's a lighthearted movie that deals with a heavy subject matter. And I suppose when you, when you see Oprah Winfrey's name attached to it, you think this is going to come with a certain amount of, um, you know, um, baggage, but mm. it doesn't, it's just a real, it's, it's a, the only thing I would say about it is I th- it's a kid's movie, but I think it might be one of those kids' movies that parents might enjoy than, more than their kids. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you for most of that. As in, I was thinking when I sat down to watch this, it said family, but all my kids are nine and under and I, I wouldn't show it to them. But I, I didn't find it lighthearted. I, I thought there was a lightness of touch, but I mean, it's not very funny or anything. No, 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 no. I'm not saying that, but it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not a particularly heavy movie. I mean, no, it's not, that, but it deals that, with, that, yeah, pretty heavy themes as in the possible loss of a parent and, you know, the isolation of a father and so on. Yeah. It, it I was, we were talking briefly about this during the week and we mentioned that movie from 2016, The Monster Calls. Yes. It's very similar in terms of how it addresses the, the concept of a, you know, an impending bereavement and how grief affects the mind of a child. And he- um, I think both The Monster Calls and The Waterman, they also share two protagonists who are you know defined by their vivid imaginations yeah and what i really liked about it was there was a kind of element to it where you weren't sure if this was a supernatural story or magic realism or just all the magic could be explained by what was going on in the world and what i also liked about it was the kid gunner uh, what would you say his name was lewis he was his name is Lonnie Chavez. He's Lonnie really, really Chavis, good. He's really good in this. He, he his standout performances. You described him as weird. I, you know, just say misunderstood. I, the character is weird. Yeah, I didn't yeah say no, that. no, not him. The character. <laughs> he's too smart for the town he's in. That's all. And I also really like the the elements of kind of the myth around this waterman who mm. has this magic power to save people. Like I was really 
based on the trailer, I thought, mm, this is, but I was really pleasantly surprised by it. It was kind of yeah. delightful, even though it's about heavy kind of topics. It was really well told. It, it is. Yeah. It, I think it leans into the, the heavier aspects of the story just enough to, mm. to not try and dodge or avoid any of the unpleasant realities of, of grief, but it doesn't get, it doesn't get mired down in it either. Uh, and it is a movie for kids and it's almost a fairy tale, but I suppose like all fairy tales, there's a, there's a bit of nastiness at the center of the sugar cube, you know? Yeah, very much so. And they all have to have that uh, really to make sense because kids are smart when it comes to that kind of thing. I would actually say just in terms, as I mentioned, it's probably one for teens, I think, because I do think, you know, the Waterman scenes and stuff might be a bit fearful for, as I say, anyone under nine, certainly, but it certainly would be one for you sitting around with, I don't mean you, I mean you, the great audience audience out there one. sitting around one there you go much better for one to sit around with teenagers i think they might get a lot out of it so what would you say stars wise for the waterman oh i'm going to give it another three and a half it's okay. it's definitely a, like it's a it's a cut above the average netflix now you I, I yeah it's on netflix it's been there since last friday you have lately been saying that though so i do think you might need to adjust your view of netflix movies no no <laughs> okay I guess we'll wrap it up there until we turn to the next Netflix movie. That's The Waterman on Netflix. Mark's giving it three and a half, and I'm going to give it three and a half as well. I'm veering towards four. Maybe it's a bit slight for a four, but I did really enjoy it. And you know what? You should just almost sit down and watch it without any expectation, preferably with your teenager. So that's three and a half from both me and Mark for The Waterman, now available on Netflix. Mark, thanks a lot. Thanks, John. Up next, comedian Nick Helm on reaching giddy stratospheres. Screen Time on News Talk. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and movie show. I'm John Fardy. Now I want to tell you about a new British movie called Giddy Stratospheres, which is available for digital download from Amazon Prime, Google Play. Sky Store from Monday. That's Monday the 19th of July. And it's a new British movie and it's set over one kind of party-fueled night and a pretty horrific morning the next day. It stars James Frankel playing Daniel, who's best pal to Lara, played by Laura Jean Marsh. People might know her as a musician. She was in a kind of indie punk band back in the noughties, Screaming Ballerinas. And she would have been part of that London music scene, I suppose, with people like Ash Franz Ferdinand and Hole, not that Hole were a London band, but of that kind of musical era, because this movie takes place then, and these two soulmates are going from gig to gig. Lara's living a wild kind of life. There's clearly some stuff going on in her family life uh, with her parents and all sorts of things but she just wants to party and her and her friend Daniel try never to miss a gig but as this kind of night goes on and draws to a close a darkness comes after the party and the next day she can't work out why Daniel is so desperate for her to remember the night before like why is she in this state of denial she's also on her way to a funeral it's very much a story of a night and the morning after. The soundtrack is amazing because it's kind of music I like, I have to say, of that era. Guitar bands really rocking it out. And her brother is played by Nick Helm, who meets her the next morning on the way to this funeral. Now, Nick Helm is a well-known English comedian. You would know him from panel shows and you probably might have seen him on Live at the Apollo. He's kind of a 
bullish comedian, but kind of angry in a funny way on stage. She was also on a great BBC show called Uncle that ran for three seasons, started on BBC Three, but then migrated, which is always a good sign, where he plays a unwilling uncle in a way whose nephew comes back into his life he plays a rock musician but he has to he's tasked with minding this nephew and it's a very sweet quite sincere kind of dark great british comedy at times that nick helm was in anyway as i say nick helm is also in giddy stratospheres and i got to talk to him about that and a lot more besides so nick you know this is a dark comedy all about a strange, debauched, emotional night in the morning after with a fantastic soundtrack with music from the early to mid-noughties. Was this just straight in your wheelhouse as soon as you got the script? Was it kind of a no-brainer that you wanted to do it? Uh, yeah, I mean, I read the script. Laura, uh, Laura Jean Marsh, who wrote it and directed it, um, we... Uh, I think we worked together a very long time ago. We, I think uh, we worked together about eight or nine years ago. I said that she'd written a script and she wanted me to play her brother. And I was like, okay, send me the script. Send me the script. And I read the script and I was like, all right, yeah. And I thought, you know, as you're reading it, you know, um, it, I don't, yeah. I mean, we've been in lockdown and I've, yeah. I've failed to read anything. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, yeah, so she sent me the script, and it's like you know, ninety pages long or whatever, and uh, you're reading it, and I I got the idea that I knew where it was going, and then it sort of like changed, and yeah, um, yeah and then it turned out that it was full of sort of like surprises, and I thought it was interesting, and um, uh, yeah, it was it 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 was better than um, when I when I first started reading it. Um, I, you know, I, I thought I had it sussed and then it turned out that it yeah. was a little bit, it was, it was more com- complicated than that. And, um, and I thought, yeah, I, I'd, I'd love to be part of this. So, yeah. it was, so it was one of the few things that kept you reading during lockdown. Well, that's high praise, I guess, you know. <laughs> well, no, it's got to that stage where, um, uh, I was, I was reading, uh, I was reading a book and I kept looking at the top, uh, the top right hand corner to see what time it was because <laughs> I'm still used to reading off my phone, you know? Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, so it was, it was good to sort of like sit down and read and read, but it was, yeah, it was a surprising kind of um, uh, screenplay. It was good. Richard Herring, who plays in essence, your father is 13 years older than you. Uh, that was kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh when you see us side by side, uh, he looks a lot older. So he does. It's, so it's so yeah. I think that visually, you know, we don't have our date of birth uh, stamped on our heads. So uh, <laughs> he can get away with being my dad. I can get away with being uh, his son. That was yeah, kind absolutely. of absolutely. That was kind of a really funny thing because because um, uh, I said I'd do it because I liked the script and we'd work together and um, and you know I thought I'm sort of big on supporting you know new talent, young talent. Yeah. Um, and, uh, me and Nora had sort of like a, a zoom meeting and I liked her and I just thought, right, good, let's, let's do this. And then, um, yeah. And then shortly after she said, oh, by the way, Richard Herring's cast as your dad. And I was like, oh, great. <laughs> we didn't end up having any, we didn't end up having any like diet. We've got a scene together, but we didn't end up yeah. having any dialogue together, but we kind of like bumped into each other, um, while we were filming 
Um, and then we ended up making another film together about uh, four weeks later, where randomly we were cast as relatives again. Um, oh. So, uh, which was set at a wedding. So, and then we did get to hang out with each other in the green room and on set, and uh, and that was that was funny. So by the end of like the two films, we were sick of the sight of each other. <laughs> and you know, in, in Giddy Stratospheres, a lot of particularly your bits are taking place on a a kind of dark morning, uh, and not to give any spoilers, but but on the way to a funeral, and it's it's after the night before. You know, I remember those dark mornings after the night before was that kind of part of the i don't know not morbid but the dark pleasure in this just that horrible come down feeling yeah i think it's something that um i could sort of relate to from from it's weird because you know it's it's it's, it's one of those films where it's set in the past it's uh, you know it's, yeah. It's, a, it's sort of a period film, but it's it's recent history. Yeah. Um, it's like if there's a film set in the future that's sort of like, you know, five years in the future and people have different phones and maybe the cars are a bit snazzier, but it doesn't look that different. So it was, it's, it's sort of, it's sort of, um, it's sort of weird. It also, it was like this tiny, it had this tiny budget. And, um, and when I was watching it, um, you know, because we've had a we've had a screening, and when you watch it, I think that it really does sort of. Um, you know, I've had sort of like lost nights in. I lived in Brighton in the mid two thousands when the film was set, and I had like lost nights in like clubs and house parties and stuff like that. Um, and I think the film does a really, really great. I mean, it is a small budget, but regardless of the budget, I think it does a really good uh, job of kind of uh, evoking that sort of. Uh, time period and that feeling um, and especially for me like in my um, you know late teens uh, early to mid 20s um, yeah it's sort of like it rang it rang really true you know I've I've made films I've directed stuff I've been in I've been in quite a lot of stuff now and um, I think for it to feel that authentic um mm. It's kind of like a real, I think it's a real achievement and it's a real yeah. accomplishment of the film, you know. As you mentioned, you have done plenty of other things. And I was talking to you just before I came on, your series on BBC, Uncle, that ran for three seasons. You know, it's kind of a an unsung gem to my mind for people who don't know where you play this reluctant uncle to a nephew. Mm. And you're a, you're, you're a musician and you kind of don't want to be his nephew. But then it goes, or sorry, you don't want to, you don't want to uncle him, so I to don't, speak. I do not want to be his nephew <laughs> that's certainly true but I, I i i'm on public record in this show saying once or twice that my favorite movie if i'm ever asked is the royal tenenbaums yeah wes anderson and i read in an interview that you were in some ways attempting to ape that on that show is is that correct um well yeah royal tenenbaums i i i, I like early wes anderson which um i, I think bottle rocket uh, Rushmore and Tenenbaums and then Life Aquatic but basically the three that he wrote with Owen Wilson are my favourites and, and Royal Tenenbaums is my just one of my absolute favourite films it, it, you know it switches between that and like a horror film uh, yeah. uh, Army, Army of Darkness Evil Dead 3 um, <laughs> so it's that or Royal Tenenbaums I think Royal Tenenbaums is incredible and when um, 
I got the script for Uncle. It's kind of like it was about this, uh, you know, layabout uh, deadbeat uncle, and uh, the script was really good. Um, but uh, you know, a lot of things can go wrong between uh, being on paper, you know, and uh, and making it into an actual film, you know. Sure. Uh, so. Um, so when we had our initial meeting and it was like the easiest, the easiest job interview I've ever had where, well, I mean, Henry Normal, who was head of baby care at the time, he came to see me in Edinburgh. So I suppose I'd had written several Edinburgh shows to get to the point that he'd come to see me. And, and then they got this script in and, um, he thought I'd be good for it. So they brought me in and I read it and they, they brought me in. I met the writer, director, Oliver Refson. And we sat next to each other, had a brief chat. And then Henry said, do you two like each other? And it was like, yeah. And he goes, great, let's film in September. And it was like, it was crazy because it, it, it was it was such a uh, a quick process of like a couple of weeks. And one of the things was you read it on paper and it could go either way. It could be kind of like a broad sort of, um, uh, like an Adam Sandler. I mean, it's definitely um, Ollie's um, American, and um, and it definitely had like American influences in the in the script. And it could have been kind of like a broad sort of Adam Sandler film, or it could have been something else. But I wanted to make sure that it was the the on the right side of what I wanted what I wanted to make. And we just went out, and we ended up just talking about uh, Royal Tenenbaums and. Um, you know, I think uh, we talked about Harold and Maud as well. And, you know, those sort of like um, uh, Hal Ashby, Ashby type films from the 70s and then the sort of films that Wes Anderson basically owes his career to. And, um, yeah, we, we we agreed on that, you know, and it was kind of like, all right, so you want to do something that's slightly um, classy. So let's let's go f- and artistic and classy and stuff like that. And I think it's great. What's great about the series is it does have all of that, but it is also sort of um, uh, it does cater for sort of like broader tastes as well. It's kind of like a real mi- and it's funny and it's dramatic and sad, and um, uh, it's about uh, depression and broken families and all this other stuff. And I think you know it just rang really clear. I mean, Royal Tenenbaums has got you know. Uh, the scene with um, uh, Luke Wilson in the bathroom is, is sure. absolutely is harrowing, but it's also mm. beautiful and it's yeah. traumatic. And then at the end with um, uh, Ben Stiller, when he uh, tells Gene Hackman that he's had a tough year, they know oh. it makes me cry oh, it's just every say, single time. Gets me every time. And then he says, I know you have Chazzy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, and I think, do you know what I mean? Um, I always, every time I see it and I've had to ration myself cause I don't want to overwatch it. That, um, that, Oh, I'm not going to cry this time. And I cry every single time. And just to be able to have the opportunity to try and make something that kind of resonates on a level like that, um, uh, was kind of, you know, it's a great yeah. source of pride to me. Well, you sh- you should be proud, and for anyone who doesn't know, Uncle it is very funny, but it's also very poignant uh, at times. It has to be said as well. Listen, I obviously have seen you over the years on TV shows and all sorts of things like Uncle and panel shows and all. I rewatched last night uh, one of your shows live at the Apollo, and oh, I yeah, was just yeah. thinking, you you seem to be one of those comedians who enjoys, you know, an occasional 
awkward feeling in the audience building like that doesn't seem to worry you if if a joke might land in a weird way en route to another joke that's going to make it all make sense eventually that you seem quite happy and content to rally around in awkwardness for a while and you had this joke about watching birds of prey and it took a while to get there and then it was hilarious but there was 30 to 90 seconds of oh this is a bit you know and you were kind of baiting <laughs> the audience you seem to enjoy that feeling a bit do you or it certainly doesn't bother you um well uh i uh... I think when I write a joke uh, that it is funny. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I just expect an audience, you know, to, 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 to laugh at it. And also by the time you get to the Apollo, you've tested it out like yeah. hundreds of times. Um, so it's not like you've just turned up on the day and then tried out some new material. It's kind of like, it's all tested. So yeah, I guess that material is, um, uh takes away a while to get there but i don't see what's wrong i don't see what's wrong with that you know no absolutely it's kind of like, it's kind of like the audience have just got to trust you to a certain mm. extent and um and who if you can see that if you can see a punchline coming then then is it is it a surprise no it's not so no. um i try and do something that's sort of uh original and different yeah, absolutely. And I meant that as a compliment, by the way. You know, I was, I of was course, marveling yeah. at I was marveling at your technique. I, I realize oh, yeah. you're not up there doing Mrs. Brown's voice or anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen, then finally, Nick, you know, I've spoken to a couple of comedians over the last years, over the last year for various things. And you mentioned, you know, finding it hard in lockdown. Like you do TV and you do movies and music and all that, but you're also a stand up. Has it been strange being away from live audiences for the last year? It must have been odd. Um, well, to, I was I was due on tour uh, and I think we were meant to start the uh, I toured last uh god last year the year before last yeah. i was touring i was in the middle of a tour in 2019 oh my god and uh at the beginning of 2020 when the pandemic struck we were just about to go on the second leg of the tour and at the time i was getting very stressed about the tour and um we had to sort of like delay all of the uh gigs it was sort of like came as a bit of a relief to get a bit of space and then we had to delay it again and then delay it again and then delay it again and then eventually I was just like let's <laughs> stop doing this show and then when we're allowed back out I'll write a new show and we'll we'll do that instead because I just felt like it wasn't relevant but um yeah at first it was kind of good because in this I've been doing Edinburgh since 1997 and I've been writing shows in Edinburgh since 2001 so 20 years um, um and it's like one of those things where it's just like I, you know in the early days I didn't have any money so I never went on holiday and then later on um I'd made enough money to go on holiday but <laughs> um I couldn't take the time off and it's and it's kind of like a very competitive industry and so we're yeah. always sort of like going head to head and and trying to kind of like and even when you do take time off you know that no one else is. So it was kind right. of like, it was weird. It was this weird time when we all had to stop. It was like, everyone's got to stop. You, you know, we've all got to stop. Um, and you have to take time off from, from your job. And that was so rare because it was actually, um, uh, it allowed you to, it allowed me to take some time off for the first time properly in 20 years. Yeah. And, um, and it kind of like was, 
you know, a big weight off and liberating. And then it made me kind of like go back and really think about what it was because you get caught up in the race, you know, where yeah. you're competing. And, and so it was kind of good because it, it gave me time to sort of like um, uh, regroup and sort of like work out what it was that I wanted out of my career. Mm-hmm. And then it got boring. And then it was just like, let's gig again. So I'm sort <laughs> of, I'm at the stage now where I'm ready to sort of like get back out there. I mean, on, I've done online gigs, but the sure. The, they're just not the same, you know? No, indeed. I've heard that. Well, look, Giddy Stratospheres is a fine little movie because it's only an hour and 10 minutes long, but it is a real trip in every sense of the phrase. It's available on digital on-demand platforms and video on-demand platforms from the 19th of July. It stars Nick Helm, and I'm delighted to have chatted to him today. Thanks a lot, Nick. Thank you very much. Cheers. Yeah, comedian Nick Helm there talking to me about all sorts of things. Notably, though, his role in Giddy Stratospheres, a new English movie available from the 19th of July, available on various digital platforms, including the Sky Store, Amazon Prime, Google Play, and all sorts of places. So you can find it. So if you're into that kind of kind of indie punk scene of the mid-noughties, I think you'd enjoy this movie. It's about a wild night out uh, and the horrible come down the next day. That's Giddy Stratospheres. Up next, food critic Tom Durley on his favourite movie. Screen Time on News Talk. Now you're listening to Screen Time News Talk's TV and movie show. It's that stage of the week where we talk to someone well-known about their favourite movie. Now, I've spoken to all sorts of people over the years in this slot, from weather forecasters to actors, from comedians to chefs, but I've never spoken to a restaurant critic or a food writer, so I've decided to go straight to the top. Tom Dorley is Ireland's, or probably Ireland's, best-known food writer and food critic. He's been doing it for a long time now. People will know him a lot from the restaurant which he was observing celebrities dishes over the years he currently writes in the irish daily mail and the mail on sunday about food and wine and all sorts of things and he's a jolly old chap and i'm delighted to say he's (laughs) joining me now to talk about his favorite movie hi tom how are you hi john i'm I'm good i'm i I am blushing a bit after (laughs) after hearing that but thank thank you for those kind words that's what they told me you know always compliment the talent it it leads for a much better interviewer you know then you can go for the jugular halfway through I, 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 yeah, I for forewarned is forearmed. Yes, uh, as they say. Exactly. Listen, I know you struggled to come up with a favorite movie, as most people do in this slot, because yeah. I know it's a hard question. But you have landed on one, and by God, it's a classic. Will you tell our listeners what you see today? Certainly, as your favorite film. I, I will indeed, John. It's the Lady Killers. Now it's the 1955 one. There was a remake, an American remake in 2004. And I am so devoted to the 1955 one that I couldn't bring myself to look at that one in 04. It, oh, it may, wow. It may be brilliant. I don't know. I, I just don't want to see it. <laughs> I don't want anything to interfere with the perfection of the 1955 one. It's... Um, it's one of the Ealing comedies. Mm-hmm. It's directed by um, Alexander McKendrick, who, uh, who probably whose who's best known British film was uh, Whiskey, uh, Whiskey Galore. Um, very, very funny story by Compton McKenzie. Uh, and he also made one with Alec Guinness uh, called The Man in the White Suit. Uh, very, very different movie to The Lady Killers, in which Alec Guinness appears again. 
um, in a role that was originally created, incidentally, for Alistair Sim. And um, Alekin is such a brilliant actor. He he actually managed to play the part of the sinister Professor Marcus, um, almost as if Alistair Sim were being channeled through him. It's a it, absolutely extraordinary uh, thing to be able to do. But um, basically, the story is about a rather hapless bunch of rather ill-assorted crooks and gangsters led by Alec Guinness as so-called Professor Marcus. He's no more a professor than I am. Um, <laughs> Probably uh, less so, I would suggest. <laughs> you're very kind. <laughs> Alec Guinness rents rooms from a, an elderly lady called Mrs. Wilberforce, who who has a sort of ramshackle house very close to uh, King's Cross Station in uh, London. They're planning a heist. And what they're planning to do is to steal very large sum of money in used notes from a train that comes into King's Cross. Uh, and the trick is they use elderly Mrs. Wilberforce to collect the money. Um, and if memory serves, they masquerade as musicians, right? They do. They, they pretend to be a string quintet. There are five of them. And they play, uh, or rather the gramophone plays uh, Boccherini, which mm-hmm. uh, Mrs. Wilberforce absolutely loves. And uh, essentially, uh, Mrs. Wilberforce twigs what's going on and is terribly honest and says she's going to the police. They try to dissuade her, but she insists that she will go the following day. So they decide they have to kill her. And the comedy, I mean, it's slightly black comedy, <laughs> is how uh, they, they draw lots to see who will... Who will who will kill her, and uh, in the process of not managing to do so, they kill each other. And uh, um, this may not sound very funny, but it's absolutely hilarious. Yeah, <laughs> uh, some amazing performances. Uh, Peter, it was actually Peter Sellers' first sort of major film, mm-hmm. um, and he 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 originally uh, auditioned to play. Uh, the hilarious character called One Round, the heavyweight boxer who has a mental age of about five. Peter Sellers plays a sort of spivy character. Herbert Lom, of course, who went on to star in uh, the um, Pink Panther series with mm-hmm. Peter Sellers. He, he plays the tremendously sinister, psychopathic um, Louis, uh, who's uh, Italian or French, and uh, but definitely continental the it, the interesting thing it was it was written by an american by the name of rose um and despite that it it captures absolutely the quintessence of a certain kind of englishness uh-huh. um uh which was a remarkable achievement and of course alexander mckendrick who directed the movie uh he was well he was he was partly Scots, but he'd, he'd, he'd grown up in the States. Um, so it's, it's interesting it has that American dimension for such an amazingly English film. And it, why, why do you think it's lingered so long in your memory all these years? I, I, I think it's one of the perfect comedies. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose the nature of true comedy is that it doesn't matter so much what, 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 what era it's set in. 
or uh, what location it's set in. It, it stands on its own feet. It's interesting, the Guardian newspaper uh, did a poll probably five, ten years ago on you know what were the greatest comedies ever. Yeah. And it was in the top five. I, I think, it, well, I was going to say it should be number one. I'd have to think about that, you know. It's not just funny. It's it's immensely clever. Yeah. In that Mrs. Wilberforce, the old lady they tried to take advantage of and then tried to kill and failed to do so, um, is um, she's, she's a sort of lonely old dear who tends to have a very fertile imagination. She's forever going to the local police station and... Uh, she, I think she also reads thrillers and detective stories, and she she imagines a lot of things. Yeah. So the police are forever telling her, "No, no, we we'll look into that, Mrs. Wilberforce. Absolutely, yes. Aliens landing in King's Cross. Yes, I did. That could well be the case." And of course, uh, when finally Alec Guinness, the last of the gang to get killed, spoiler alert here, he's actually hit by uh, <laughs> a railway signal just when he thinks. He's the final survivor who has all the loot. And his, his body drops into a passing goods train and heads off to somewhere in the north of England. What a way um, to go. Way to go. But Mrs. Wilberforce immediately goes round to the police station and says, I want to hand in the lolly. And they say, no, no, it, it's fine, Mrs. Wilberforce. You just keep that. It, 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 it. No problem at all. And she says, well, you know, it has been described as a victimless crime. And they say, indeed it is, Mrs. Wilberforce. <laughs> you, you, you keep the lolly. Yeah, well, you have uh, given a spoiler, but you have described it brilliantly. So, uh, thank you. you know, it's it's 15 all, so to speak. And I would <laughs> urge people uh, to take up your recommendation. I haven't seen it in a long time, but I do remember loving it. Uh, I would contend the greatest comedy of all time is actually The Odd Couple, but we won't fall yeah, out about that. Yeah, right? I, 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 I'd say it's definitely up there. The other thing, uh, John, funnily enough, people of my generation were kind of brought up in Ealing comedies because they were being repeated on... I was going to say RTE, what was then Telefiche Aaron in the 1960s when I was small. And um, I remember loving it as a small child and coming back to it as a grown-up and being amazed that it's actually in colour because my memory of it was that it was black and white because it, it, it captures all that griminess of post-war London and King, King's Cross, which is an area I spent a lot of time, well, I did before the pandemic. Yes. And, it, you know, it's hugely sort of gentrified now. And it's amazing to see it as it was sort of sooty and grimy and falling down and yeah. generally a bit. Yeah, well, look, th th that's the power of cinema. Well, as I say, a yes. great choice. Let me ask you this to Food Matters. Uh, I've always liked you on food, and I'll tell you why. I set up an item many years ago with you on a daytime show because you'd written a piece in the mail about how we shouldn't be knocking McDonald's and that, you know, they oh, go yeah. in and they, they serve a purpose and the Ooh. food isn't bad. And it seems to me that, you know, in terms of food critics, you know better than me, but there was an awful amount of... BS involved. And you're one oh, of yeah. the less po-face ones, I would suggest. Do you have a sense of that? Is that your raison d'etre that you're trying to make food um, accessible? You know, it's, was it Matt Busby who said um, football is, is not a matter of life and death. It's more important yeah. than that. I, I think food is more important than that. It's so central to life and it, it can give huge pleasure and it can be abused as well, of course. 
But, um, you know, like like so many things in life, it can be the subject of snobbery. And mm-hmm. um, I suppose wine, even you know, even more so where wine is, is sometimes used by a certain kind of person as a sort of, you know, social weapon. Um, and, you know, there's one-upmanship or one one womanship one up personship is a better word perhaps um and and all that complete bullshit that really annoys me uh because it's you know it's like what i say about wine 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 is a is an agricultural product made by farmers Mm -hmm. and it, it so it's like cheese and it can vary from you know easy singles to you know ripe gabine (laughs) you know there's no difference really people don't get all hoity-toity about cheese but i hope they don't (laughs) maybe i've been lucky i've missed them these snobs out there my god what a terrible thought um but yeah and coming back to mcdonald's yeah i'm i'm always amazed at the number of people who who say to me I mean, I, I I shouldn't pretend that I'm a, I'm a regular at McDonald's. I suppose I I have a fondness for a Big Mac maybe twice a year, um, and uh, usually when I'm in a hurry and I'm, I'm hungry. And um, but I'm always amazed the number of people who say, uh, "What you eat McDonald's?" And it, it's as if I've you know committed a crime or. or <laughs> Um, and and they're always people who've never bloody eaten in McDonald's. Yeah. So they don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. Now I I think McDonald's have committed various sins in the past, and I I, I you know I'm, I wouldn't let them entirely off off the hook, particularly in some of the things they've done in the United States. Um, but they do they you know they make a very good product. I remember being in a very, very major, uh, very serious meat plant a few years ago. And um, there were two um, huge containers and the meat was coming down the conveyor belt and uh, there was one container for McDonald's and there was one container for all the rest. And I thought that was very interesting because McDonald's, according to the people in this factory, were saying, oh, you you know, they, they actually have they have a higher standard in, in in terms of their meat requirements than than all of their other customers. You know, mm-hmm. so I I thought that was telling, and yeah. um, and also I really like that secret um, Big Mac sauce. You know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't intend to spend so much time talking to you about McDonald's, but there you go. You never know what a radio interview has in store. Uh, can take he, us anywhere. Indeed. Yeah. He is equally adept at describing Ealing comedies from the 50s as he is a souffle. Tom Dorley, you can read him in the Daily Mail and in the Mail on Sunday. His favourite movie is The Lady Killers. Tom, thanks a million. Pleasure. Hmm. I thought perhaps before you've all become too absorbed, you and your guests might like a cup of tea. Oh, you shouldn't. You know, Professor, you didn't tell me the truth about yourself and these other gentlemen. Why, you're not the least bit like amateurs. You really must be professionals. You're every bit as good. Not quite. And that pizzicato passage, Mr. Lawson, quite delightful. May I ask you where you studied? Well, I didn't really study any place, lady. I just picked it up. You know, I was so surprised when I heard what you were playing. It brought back something that really I've completely forgotten all about. 
my 21st birthday party. You see, my father had engaged a string quintet to come in and play in the evening. And while they were playing Baccarini, someone came in and said the old queen had passed away. Then everyone went home. That was the end of my party. A clip there from the Lady Killers. The version from the 1950s, as opposed to the remake by the Coen brothers in 2004, which I think it's fair to say was less good. And that was the favourite movie as chosen by Tom Dorley. And my thanks to him. That is it for this week. Just remind you, this show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on Newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm right here on Newstalk. Of course, it was on at nine on the radio this week because of the Lions coverage. I'm open all week long on Twitter, John underscore Farty, or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com. Have a good week, stay safe, and I will talk to you next week. I can't stop thinking about them. I keep rereading their old texts. Brian, Brian, this has got to stop. It's been months and they send those alerts to everyone. You know that, right? Look, your bank is leaving, but you got to get back out there. Listen to me, any bank will be lucky to have you, especially Bank of Ireland. Really? Yeah, they've even put together a simple step-by-step guide to move on banks and have a dedicated team on hand to help. Even an ending could be a new beginning. To start finding your new banking partner, download our step-by-step guide to moving banks. Search Bank of Ireland Big Move. Begin. Bank of Ireland is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland.